This is a story about a beautiful, powerful woman who captured the imagination of historical fiction author Shana Abe. I kept coming back to the idea of Arabella, who was a real person in that era, and literally, at one point in the Gilded Age, the wealthiest woman in America. Wow. We're talking about Arabella Huntington, the intriguing woman at the heart of the novel An American Beauty. On this Desideratum. A desideratum is an essential thing. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, and I think this story is full of essential things. This week, we return to a favorite author of mine. Shana Abe first wowed me with her story about the second Mrs. Astor, who was widowed by John Jacob Astor as she survived their honeymoon aboard the Titanic. And then she went on to carve out her own incredible path. In Shauna's new novel, An American Beauty, she introduces us to an even more remarkable woman from history, who you might know nothing about. The way she brings Arabella Huntington's life into focus got me thinking about how we can invent ourselves. We begin the conversation with how Arabella's husband became self-made. It's a great story, especially when it's told with Shauna's enthusiasm. Uh, Collis Potter Huntington was one of the big four railroad tycoons. He um, he was a self-made multimillionaire man. He started off being this very poor farm boy from Connecticut, and he was determined to not be that. <laughs> His family was so impoverished, actually, that he was taken from them as a, as a young boy. I think he was maybe 10 when he was literally separated from his family because they could not afford to feed all the kids they had. And he was sent to work on a neighbor's farm to be an apprentice. And he worked hard and he managed to garner the respect of the village. So the elders of the village got together when he was 16 and gave him letters of recommendation for work. So using these letters, he managed to get a wagon and a horse and he bought, I think it was clocks and silverware. And he started just becoming like a a traveling salesman in a way. He went down south to Virginia. He sold stuff. Eventually, he realized that, you know, there was money to be made in California um, because of the gold rush, the 49ers gold rush. So he to get to California back then, there were no railroads across America. Right. So he had to go down down to Panama <laughs> and then back up through Mexico to get to California. And you did that by, you did that by train. You did that by ferry. You did that by mule and you did that by foot. And he did that. So he got a bunch of stuff, hardware stuff to sell to the miners, managed to uh, get to California with his, I think his um, brother-in-law and some other gentlemen. And they opened a hardware store, but they were smart. They didn't try to go after the gold themselves. They sold to the miners who were going after the gold. And then they did something even better. They got a cart and they took their equipment to the remote miners so that the guys wouldn't have to come into Sacramento, into town to buy their equipment. Collis would just go to them. And so he started making more and more and more money. And as he looked around, he's like, we could use some trains here. <laughs> wouldn't it be great to have trains? Yeah. So he got together with his business partners and they did a survey and they're like, yes, if we do this and this, we can do the tracks from here to here. And he was so wily, this guy, the government would pay him to lay the line, but they would pay something like double for difficult terrain, like mountains, 
than they would like the easier terrain than plains. So he did the surveying himself and he made like a way more mountains than there really were. So he, he started to scam the government a bit, but he got a lot of money. And from there, it just, everything took off. He became this, you know, this tycoon, basically, this multimillionaire tycoon, a very important man. Yeah. Collis was married to Elizabeth, who was unabashedly devoted to him, but also a very quiet woman. Um, I read an article um, announcing her death at one point, and and several people were quoted as saying, business associates were saying they didn't even realize he was married. She was so quiet, and she just stayed at home. She didn't want to do anything else. Maybe some of that had to do with the fact that her husband was not exactly the most faithful man in the world. <laughs> yeah. Right. So here's Collis, a known gambler, going to uh, Richmond, where he meets beautiful young Arabella at the saloon. And it's no secret that she, you know, they just instantly were, I'm going to say, a good practical couple. Like they each knew what they were doing and both of them were fine with it and it worked out for them. But I will say that that makes Arabella sound a little it makes her sound cold-hearted. She was not cold-hearted. She was doing what she had to do to save her family. But I do believe, just based on all the research I've done and based on the facts, that she loved Collis and he loved her. Um, because they, once she was his mistress, they were together until his death. And after Elizabeth died, you know, it was just about six months before he married Arabella. She, at that point, she could have, she was, she already had her own money. She didn't necessarily have to marry him, but uh, they stayed together and they were a power couple of their time, just not socially, but like they were very um, compatible, let's say, practical and compatible. And they they made a very good team. Yeah. They do seem to have things in common. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Not the least of which is that they're both very shrewd and very cunning and very smart. Yes, you used the word wily a minute ago, and I was thinking, she's pretty wily, too, actually. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's pause right here and listen to the moment in the audiobook where Arabella and Collis Hollingsworth meet. They're in a saloon, a real-life place in Richmond, Virginia, just after the Civil War. The place has gambling and girls and thick, heavy drapes that block the guests from knowing, or caring, about the time or season or desperation outside its walls. This is where Arabella worked as a champagne girl. Her income supported her widowed mother and siblings. This is from An American Beauty by Shauna Abe, narrated by the incredibly talented Gail Shallon for Tantor Audio. There was a pause. Belle looked down, wet her lips, looked up again. Can I help you with anything else, sir? The man studied her a moment. She could tell that he did, even if she could not clearly see it, and made certain her smile held steady. Then he said, We've met before, Miss Lenore. None of the girls at Warsham's used their true names. Do you recall it? He pressed. Of course, Belle replied, because suddenly she did. She lifted her free hand, her left one, but it hardly mattered, and he took it in his own, 
a rough spot on his palm catching against the delicate lace of her mat. Mr. Huntington, of course I recall. It was, what, two months ago? Forty-one days, he said, still holding her hand. How kind of you to remember me. I'm afraid, Mr. Huntington said. There's nothing especially kind about it. I have discovered that you are ensnared in my memory. Oh. He released her hand. It's almost dawn. Are you done for the night? Her smile deepened. I am, but I'll be here again tomorrow if you'd like to come by. She turned away, inched the tray a little higher up her arm, and said over her shoulder, No doubt Mr. Warsham would appreciate your patronage. She knew that the reason why Collis even noticed her in the first place was not because she was necessarily witty or charming. She was gorgeous. Her beauty. Yeah. Yeah. But she was also witty and charming and that kept reeling him in. So she she polished her skills, let's say. But she had every reason to continue to continue to do that. Yes, she's very clever. Yeah, she also uh, she she was also basically self-educated. She taught herself different languages. She learned things because she loved learning so much. Hmm. So that was also just a great part of her intellect. Yes, I love the descriptions of her and her son tandemly learning things, her cultivating knowledge in him. You can tell that she celebrates knowledge when you write about it in that relationship, especially, I think. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a part that you write about this description that you wrote about when she gets reunited with her son it's like this missing piece of herself that slots back into place. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was so beautiful. And I think it was one of those places where I was like, oh, she is capable of great love. Like she is this very calculated person, but she's also capable of really a deep reserve of love. Absolutely. Yes. Again, in my research reading, um, Belle wrote letters, but Belle would typically write at the end of her letters, burn this thing. Wow. Like she wanted her letters destroyed. She didn't want people, other people reading them. Some people obviously did not burn her letters, <laughs> but there are way more letters addressed to Belle than from Belle <laughs> that I could find. But what I found uh, between her and her son, Archer, was which is this great, great, teasing, fun, happy relationship. They just, they loved talking to each other. She loved uh, learning with him. He loved her intellect and her generosity. I mean, and they just would, tell each other jokes and just consult each other about, you know, books or paintings, art, philosophy, everything. So they had a very, very close relationship. Yes, it's really amazing how you flesh this out so poetically, so completely with such limited resources. You know, she was not, she, I think in your author's note, you even say she would be delighted by the fact that there's so little. Yes. Yes. Especially maybe those things of um, of scandal, you know, that she would she would have reveled in the fact that that had been wiped clean from the record, so to speak. She she definitely tried very hard to mask her early years. She she lied nonstop about her age, about where she was born, about how many husbands she had. I mean, it, it was to the point that after she passed uh, by then she was married to Henry Edwards. He had to write to Archer, her son, 
because he was building a mausoleum for her in California, he had to write the archer say, saying, what was her real date of birth? Because he didn't even know. <laughs> wow. Well, you describe her really early in the book, actually, as I think you say she's a fan of, she has a flair for fiction, too. But she she makes up tales. Yes. She's quick on her feet to make up story that seems compelling, that puts people off the scent of things, essentially. Yeah. 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 What a what a fascinating real life character. She was. She was. And I, I knew the basics of her life when I started doing the research. But then the more I learned, the more I'm like, oh, my God, this woman was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. She was just tough and resilient and brilliant and funny and and elegant and refined at the same time. And she would lie to your face if, if it suited her. <laughs> I found this um, passport application that she did in 1908. She filled out an application in 1908 for a passport and she knocked eight years off of her actual age. And then she signed it under oath. <laughs> she kept like youngifying herself, I'm going to say. <laughs> yes, she had no problem with inventing herself. That's what she'd been doing. Exactly, exactly. From the very beginning. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, actually, inventing herself. I agree. Yeah, there's a point when he first rents the house and they're stargazing. I don't know what it was about that whole scene, but I just kept thinking, you are really drawn to these non-traditional women, non-traditional in that their loves and how they love is sort of outside a societal norm, definitely for that time, maybe for all time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that makes for an interesting story, doesn't it? It's it's lucky for me that these people actually really did exist and this is really how they lived. And I was able right. to find out about that. But yes. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I didn't want to necessarily just write about another debutante from the 400, because let's face it, not many people have a Titanic in their life. Thank God. <laughs> but, um, and that's from the second Mrs. Astor, right? That's a really dramatic thing that happened to her with Arabella. Um, the drama is is more slow building as you try to unravel this woman and her persona and and see where she came from and where she ended up. So yeah, that it's a it's a different kind of story, but it's still a very real woman who really existed and really did these things. So I find that very interesting, just from a research point of view. <laughs> yes, to to dig down into that that is yeah as a reality um, based on that all that reality um she at one point you have her do this thing where she's forcing herself to remember something let's see I think there's a description of the sky and the wildflowers it's in this fabulously described part of this rural longhorn cattle ranch in Texas and she's committing it to memory she's holding it in her memory and I thought that was just a really I don't know. I just wondered if you have personally done that. Have you been in a point in your life where you thought, okay, I just, this is perfect. I have. I definitely have. Have you? Doesn't everybody? Yeah. Where you just have this moment of like almost crystalline happiness and you, happiness can't last, you know, it, it, by nature, it rushes like the tide, it comes in and then it goes out, but you want to remember it. And so, I mean, I have several memories like that where I can just just think of that moment and be like, oh yeah, that was beautiful. That was wonderful. Right. So anyway, I guess she did that because I do that. <laughs> well, I think it's just, it reminded me of how she sort of existed even in that saloon working this night shift without her spectacles on that she was, that she was part of an illusion. Even the way you described the way she kind of survives that is that she focuses on what is beautiful 
that whole scene where you describe what color the sky is going to be, that lilac color it's going to be when she steps outside, right? That she's able to, in her mind, hold on to what's beautiful, even when things are not. Belle had learned to maintain a stately, constant pace around the rooms with her heavy silver tray. Standing motionless for too long slowed her heart, slowed her thoughts and her blood. Not unlike a mule bound to a millstone, she traveled the same path over and over, dreaming of her eventual escape. Also, like that unfortunate mule, Belle had come to anticipate with uncanny precision when her shift would end, when the sun was about to lift the sky from ink to ash to lilac, even though she couldn't see it. At lilac, she was done. She could put away her tray and remove her ridiculous dress and wrap herself in something warmer and go home and sleep. That just echoed for me, I think, in that scene where she says, hold on, remember this and hold on to this. And I don't know, I just think it's a really good, it's a life lesson, maybe. I don't know, it's something, Yeah. for me, it was an echo of just, it, it was an, an essence of who she was, that she could focus on those things um, and find the times in her life where she could hold on to them. And then she almost, I mean, I had to word, use the word manifest because that's kind of an overused word maybe, but she does sort of create for herself uh, the life she wants, even before it starts happening. Right. Yes. Yes. She has, she, she knows that where she's coming from is not where she wants to be or where she wants to stay. And she's doing what she has to do to get herself out of that situation as best she can. So she's using all of her resources, all of her wits, all of her beauty, all of her charm, all of her determination not to drown in what is essentially in the beginning, not a very nice world for her. Yeah. You know, she's hungry. She's, she's literally starving. She's got to do something to save herself and save her family. But, but she, yes, she's still able to summon that well of resolve within her to find beauty to like, she, she likes to garden. Yeah. Yeah. She, and that's a that Arabella Huntington did she loved the garden she was known for her violets I have in the prologue she opens up in her violet yes she grew Russian parma and English violets and she was famous for them and she would tell people you know if I didn't have any money at all I think I would just be a violet gardener and just grow violets to make my living that way she so she would give her pots of violets out to her friends and they would be really treasured um, because they were gorgeous I understand but yes she loved to garden and even so back in Richmond when she's before her life changes for the better she's still a determined gardener which is hard to do because you know she sleeps during the day <laughs> so she she grows the hardy things like the the things that don't require constant tender attention but um but she does grow them and she continues to grow throughout her life she she has these greenhouses these lush gardens these fabulous things if um she helped design the gardens for the Huntington Botanical Gardens in in Pasadena she was one of the designers of those in addition to helping with that design the house she loved growing things that was that was her at the risk of making it a pun it rooted her in a way yeah I've heard this great I heard a great comment recently about gardening that people that garden are planning for the future, right? Oh, one of the reasons that gardening is such a good thing to do isn't even that you're going to eat what you grow, but it's the act of planning on the next season. It's the act of planning for the future. 
Oh, that's nice. That's a good way. Yeah. 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 And she certainly was that, right? She was very forward thinking. Exactly. In every way. So, yeah, I, I thought you played with color. You, you used a lot of descriptions of color throughout this whole thing from the drapes and the everything. Just, I thought you just really, you used visual language for locations and settings and clothing. And it was, I thought it was exceptional. Oh, thank you. That's always my goal is to, as I'm writing it, I, I'm, I'm seeing flashes of it in my head, like visually. Ah. And then I'm trying to find the words for what I see. So it's like a, it's like a tandem kind of activity, really, where I want to find the, the words for it, but I can see it in my mind as an image, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's kind of remarkable. I've never really tried to describe that before, but I'm sorry, that's a little clumsy, but that's kind of what it's like. I see the image and then I try to find the words to describe the image. And then I try to make sure the words flow well and match the beauty of, or the terror or whatever it is in my head. Oh gosh, I really enjoy your storytelling. I was so glad to get to know her. I was glad to meet her and get to know her. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for bringing her up out of history and introducing her to women today, you know? She was definitely, uh, she would be formidable today as well as she was back then. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Well, I think, I don't, I can't remember if the last time we talked, if I asked you this, but I have been trying every time I talk to storytellers to ask about things that are essential because I try to tie back to the name of the podcast, which is Desideratum and ask, you know, for you as a storyteller or as a person, what do you think is most essential? Okay. Well, I think most essential is to be happy and to be happy for me, that means I have a lot of pets. I love my pets. They're good distractions for me. I do volunteer work um, and that makes me happy. I have a very loving and wonderful husband whom I appreciate very much. And I can say that because I was married before and it was a miserable, miserable, miserable time of my life. So now I look back and I'm like, thank God I'm not there anymore. I'm here. You know, even if I'm having a kind of a crappy day, I just look around and say, but I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky. So this is essential to me is just to remember that I am lucky that, that, you know, my happiness is right in front of me. I just have to remember sometimes to notice it and to connect to it. So be, I mean, be a good person too. <laughs> Don't be a jerk happy. <laughs> be a nice person happy. <laughs> I hope spending time with Shana Abe made you as happy as it did me. A big thanks to Shana, her publisher, Kensington Press, her narrator, Gail Shallon, Gail's director, Hilary Urich, and all the fine folks at Tantor Audio for bringing an American Beauties audiobook to life. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>